I'm going to meet you this morning in the fifth chapter of Matthew, the first gospel in the New Testament. And this is a particularly interesting passage because this kicks off or this is a portion that kicks off the great sermon on the Mount. And we're going to do the gospel reading this morning, which takes a pretty large chunk of the fifth chapter of Matthew. But rather than stand up here and just read, uh, we're, we're going to read little snippets from that Sermon on the Mount in just a moment. And to get us there, I, I want to share a few thoughts with you to kind of lay out the context of what I feel the Lord's put on my heart this morning. Uh, I was given great advice by a minister one time that said, just remember two things when you preach. Tell a good story and make Jesus the star. I try to do that when I preach, tell a good story. I'm not a great storyteller. I don't think I am. So a lot of times I fail in the first one. So I figure if you're going to fail in the first one, don't fail in the second one. Make Jesus the star. And so what we want to do today is point our spotlights on the man, Christ Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We look unto him for our salvation. And when I say salvation, I do not mean Simply the moment when you recited a prayer and you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, a phrase not found in the Bible, by the way. Uh, not that I don't think Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior, but we've rotated most of Christianity around the moment. The moment people say a prayer. Salvation is way more than the moment you say a prayer. Salvation is the ongoing experience of being transformed into the image of God. Amen. And that ongoing experience might have started when you said a prayer. I, I, got a, I got good odds on it started way before you said a prayer. It got you to that prayer. You started transforming into the kind of person that could believe in that God. You started transforming into that kind of person that could believe you needed that God. Then you said a prayer. And that started another stream of your adventure. But you're on that great adventure today. You're on that, that salvation journey. It's being built. It's growing. It's expanding. It's going through peaks and valleys. Some days you're way up here with your faith. Some days you're way down here with your faith. Some days you can't find your faith. <laughs> Some days you're going around the bend. You don't know what's coming around the bend, but you keep the faith and you go around it with him. And the father is walking this out through you. One of the beautiful things on your salvation journey is this. The meeting of saints where you sit in community and you hear the Jesus through their voice. And you hear the Jesus through his voice and you see Jesus in his eyes and her eyes. And that makes you part of the body and you're better in the body because you need the hand. Sometimes you're the foot and vice versa. And so we need that. That's part of the salvation journey. Another part of the salvation journey is that Bible you're holding. And maybe you have a hard copy today, old fashioned page turning. Maybe you have the digital version of your phone or your iPad. Maybe you like audible versions of the Bible, whatever version you choose. I'm not really the stickler on translation. I think it'd be better to get in there and read something and wrestle something out than to get mad at what translation someone's using. At least get started looking for Jesus somewhere. We can work out Greek and Hebrew later and we'll still be wrong because we speak English and we'll get as close as we can get, but we'll drop the ball and that's okay because we're not disciples of the Bible. We're disciples of the Jesus that's in the Bible. And that leads me to this thought. And I promise I'm not rambling. This is intro that is going somewhere. That leads me to the Jesus that's in the Bible, which leads me to the thought that the Bible is in no way about me. And in no way about you. And that's easy to forget because you, owe, you hold your Bible. You've been taught from the very beginning that you're supposed to read it. And I agree. 
You've been taught from the very beginning that inside of it you'll find life. And I agree. But it's not a story about you. And it's also, though it makes a great acronym for Vacation Bible School, it's not the B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. It's way better than that. It's not a guidebook. It's not a map book. Because the problem with guidebooks and maps are you are the center of the story. See, on your GPS, it locates around your location. When you open your GPS, it wants to know where you are because you are the only thing that matters in the GPS, not what's coming around the corner, you. When you pick up an atlas, now, by the way, for the younger crowd, that's a big book that had these paper maps in it. You could read about what highway was coming up that was dated next year, but we kept them in the car anyway. My dad bought one every year, just sat in his chair in the living room and looked at it. I don't know. Anybody else's dad? Yeah. And it would, people are going, Dad, I've got one at home right now. Yeah. Issue with the atlas, you had to orient around you because the atlas orients around you. If you read a guidebook, it orients around your flavor of restaurant. What kind of theater you like to visit? What kind of music do you want to hear? If you want to hear this, you can go here. If you want to hear that, you can go there. It's all about you. We read the Bible that way a lot of times, and we're reading it wrong. Because the Bible is not the story of you. The Bible is the story of our salvation in the man, Christ Jesus. So that every angle, every nook, every cranny, every shadow is Jesus. That hiding sometimes in the darkness, in the background, Jesus. Sometimes front and center, story all about him, Jesus. But in every case, Jesus is that centerpiece. I think we avoid it because we're bored with it or we avoid it because we are overwhelmed by it. That's the two biggest reasons I get when people tell me that they're not Bible readers. Well, I get bored. And the reason we get bored is because we're reading it as a history book. And if you read history books, you get bored. I don't mean they can't be exciting, but for the most part, you don't go to the store and buy the thickest history book you can find for light reading. And when you open the Bible as a history book, you get bored because the Bible's not a history book, so we're reading it wrong. Or when we open the Bible for simple principles, we get overwhelmed. It's loaded. It's written by 47 people across 1,500 years in three different languages, none of which are in front of me. How in the world am I supposed to understand context, time, setting, place, biography? I don't know what's going on in this book, so we're overwhelmed because we see it as a book demanding something of us. Live right, don't live wrong. Instead, put Jesus in the center. How do we do that? The attempt in this morning's message is to answer. How do we do that? Because it's, e- it's not as easy as read the Bible and everywhere just put Jesus in the verse. That's not that simple. Because sometimes it's hard to find him there and sometimes it's impossible to find him there. And we go, how would we do that? So here's my thoughts today and trying to make this as simple as possible because that helps me. If I can make it simple for me, then maybe I can say it out loud. And it's this. How did Jesus read the Bible? Now, we know Jesus could read and that might be more shocking for me to say that 
than meets the eye because not everyone in Jesus' day could read. The world was a 3% literacy rate in the time of Christ. That means 97 out of 100 people could not read their own name on a piece of paper in the time of Christ. And so he came from a culture of audio listeners. They heard the scriptures recited and they sang the Psalms. And that's how they learned the word. Jesus was able to read because he does so in Luke chapter 4 in the synagogue. But it's not just the ability to read, it's how we read. How did Jesus interpret the scriptures? How did Jesus see them when he saw them? And if I could get to the bottom of how Jesus saw them, I could get to the bottom of how I'm supposed to see them. And what might shock us all is that Jesus did not see the scriptures in the same way the world of his day saw the scriptures. His greatest at odds moments were with scribes and Pharisees. And guess who were the smartest Bible people on the planet in the time of Christ? Scribes and Pharisees. And I don't just mean, we, we think of them as enemies, like they were this snarky group of evil people that were a little bit Darth Vader, and, uh, uh, and, and they were kind of dark, and they went around trying to get Jesus trapped. But they weren't, because in Christ's day, the Pharisees were the holiest people on the earth, and the scribes were the best Bible people on the earth. And Jesus came along and found disagreements at all turns, and it's not because they were reading the Hebrew different. And here's the key, they were interpreting the Father differently. And how we interpret the Father becomes how we read His Scriptures. I didn't say how we read our Bible. It's not ours. I said it's how we read His. So, I don't want to read big chunks of Scripture today. I want to read some highlights from the Sermon on the Mount. And I think you'll find very quickly why we're doing this, because I want to show you a few moments. There are several in the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus says, here's what you've heard, but here's what I say about it. And in that contrasting moment, we're going to get an idea of how Jesus read the scriptures. Now, for context, Jesus just said this. Don't think I've come to, uh, I've come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. He said, not one, one jot or one tittle of the law shall pass away till all things be fulfilled. So out of his mouth, Jesus says, don't worry, I'm not abolishing the law. I'm here to fulfill it. Now, why would you open your sermon with, don't worry, I'm not about to abolish the law. I'm about to fulfill it. If you weren't about to say a bunch of controversial stuff. If I opened my sermon this morning with, don't worry, I'm not crazy. You would think, oh boy, here we go. This is going to be a run right here. He even had to warn us up front he wasn't crazy because he knows this, what he's about to say is crazy. So for Jesus to open with, don't think I'm about to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Whatever he's about to say about the law is going to sound like he's abolishing the law. It's going to sound like he's absolutely against the word. But that's your first interpretive key that what comes out of Jesus' mouth is the heart of the Father. And yet what Jesus is reading doesn't always sound like the heart of the Father. And so learning to interpret it through Jesus becomes key. Let's start here in Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, and I want you to mark that if, you're a, if you are one who likes to underline, here's something worth underlining and you're going to get to underline it several times this morning in the same message. The phrase... But I say to you, because when anyone opens with but, they're countering what they just said. You know, you're a really nice guy, but, oh. yeah, right? Like whatever you say next is way more important than you're a really nice guy. You threw in you're a really nice guy to butter me up for the but I have somewhat against you. 
moment, right? And so Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of the judgment. Now, we're not going to read the entire Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to stop right there because we don't have time to unpack the fullness of everything Jesus said. But I want to hit one salient highlight in each one of these to try to get us inside the mind of Christ. Jesus quotes the sixth commandment. Everyone in his audience knows the sixth commandment. I would say everyone in this audience knows the sixth commandment. But I bet you didn't know it was the sixth commandment because we're not good at memorizing the commandments because we're not saved by the commandments, right? What's the sixth commandment? Thou shalt not kill, which is actually in the Hebrew, thou shalt not murder, which holds different connotations in the Hebrew language even than the word kill. So thou shalt not murder, which means don't take someone's life. Most everyone in this room has kept the sixth commandment and you didn't even try. Like you don't wake up in the morning and go, God, help me today. I am so close. Now, the truth is, is that some of you may be praying that. This message is for you in ways I didn't even imagine until just now. And you say, I need help not killing today. Okay, then really pay attention to the Jesus we're talking about. But for most everybody else, you just have honored the sixth commandment your entire life and never gave it another thought. Congratulations, your moral code is outstanding in regards to the sixth commandment. And I think that's why Jesus opens with this one, because his audience goes, yep, yep, that's right, don't kill, we're doing good. And Jesus says, but I say to you, if you're angry at your brother without a cause, you're also in danger. And he says of the judgment. In, in other words, Jesus puts the person angry in the same boat as a person that's a murderer. And for that, we would have to pump the brakes because there's no way that you are as guilty if you are angry with someone as you are if you murder someone. And if you think otherwise, just get mad at someone and see if they put you in prison and put you in the electric chair. They don't. Even in the natural world, we do not judge people for anger in the way that we judge people for murder. But Jesus says what has happened is that you have read thou shalt not murder and you let everything else go. I say to you that when you read the word, don't let yourself off the hook just because you haven't specifically broken that command. Jesus says, odds are you hate somebody that you don't you have too much morality to murder them but you hate them anyway and jesus says i say to you you are also not simply responsible for how you actually touch your neighbor you are responsible for your own emotions towards your neighbor so your bible says don't kill people but i say to you get yourself under control and the whole crowd took a step back because that's what we would do in the face of that. How did Jesus read the sixth commandment? Every one of you have kept that one. Congrats. But you're, you're in control of your murdering hand, but you're not in control of your tongue and you're not in control of your emotions and you're not in control of your action, your, your heart, and you're not in control of, your, of projecting your feelings onto other people. And Jesus goes, in that sense, you still stand in front of a judgment. That's how Jesus saw that commandment verse 27 you have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not commit adultery but i say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart now for the most part his audience had not committed adultery because though we could be 
nearly 100% in most rooms that people had not murdered. We cannot be nearly 100% in any room that someone hasn't committed adultery, but it's still not the majority. Jesus has simply ratcheted up the command level just a little bit by moving just one command down to the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then drops in, don't commit adultery, but I say to you that if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. That became a verse that has just simply put people under a lot of guilt, shame, and condemnation about physical lust. But what Jesus is doing is dipping back into the code of the Torah because he's reading their scriptures. And he's reading their scriptures to say, don't actually break your covenantal relationship with your spouse and don't step outside the covenantal relationship with your spouse. But in the Hebrew reality, he uses the phrase, if you look upon a woman to make her your wife, if you look upon a virgin or if you look upon a married woman to make her your wife, he said you already committed adultery with her. And so what Jesus is saying to his audience is, it's not only enough that you don't commit adultery, he says, but I say to you, don't be a predator. And so it's more than just, did you actually break the bounds? It's, are you in the area of predation? Are you the predator and someone else is the prey? And Jesus goes, it might be easy for you to say, I haven't done that. But what's your attitude toward the world outside of you? Jesus goes, that's how I read the scripture, right? We're bringing all of these together. Sixth commandment, seventh commandment, verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. I want to help you here with a really bad translation. All right. And I don't just mean the new King James that I'm reading from. I mean, Greek to English. This is one we've, we've really messed up because we don't read the Hebrew Torah code as well. See, in the Torah code, Jesus is actually dipping into the deepest part of the Torah that he will in this whole argument, Deuteronomy 24. In Deuteronomy 24, there's a moral code in which gives the Hebrew man, not a woman, a man, the right to issue a bill of divorcement. But by issuing that bill of divorcement, he is making it evident to everyone that he did not want to be with that woman. And what had happened is that Judaism and the Hebrew mindset looked at the bill of divorcement as a way out of every marriage they didn't like. Men could leave women because they weren't good cooks. He could leave a woman because she gained weight after they got married. He could leave a woman because she didn't sexually satisfy him. He could leave a woman because she left her shoes in the floor and he didn't like walking around them. Any excuse he came up with, he could legally, Deuteronomy 24, legally issue a certificate of divorce. And Jesus said, I want to switch this up and let you know that if she cheated, you'd have a right out of the relationship. He goes, but other than that, you've simply done this. Here's the messed up translation. In reality, he says, you make it appear that the woman is an adulteress. So that everyone that looks at her thinks that she cheated on the marriage. He goes, you've used it as a way to get out of stuff you don't like. He says, but in reality, it is simply causing someone else to look bad. And in truth, what the divorce code was supposed to do for the Hebrews was make the man look bad. Because the woman, had she actually committed adultery, was supposed to be stoned to death. So if she was divorced, it simply meant her husband was a jerk. 
Let's let that soak in for a moment. That was the code. That's why God said write her a certificate of divorce so that when she gets to the next person, they won't think she cheated. They'll know that her husband dropped her from his life for whatever reason. And Jesus says, so what does Jesus do? He reads the same code from Deuteronomy 24 and reimagines it not as a way for people to get out of marriages, but for a way for people to recognize their godly union with the Father. And so Jesus' reimagining, sometimes what we do is we take the Scriptures and we use them to our advantage. And when Jesus reads the Scripture, He tells us we're not allowed to just use the Scripture to our advantage, but to see the reality behind that Scripture. Oh yes, we could do an hour on every one of these. This is a series of sermons on all of the things Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. But what we're really trying to do is show in different patterns through this sermon how Jesus interprets the Scripture. Look at another one, verse 33. Again, that you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, see this again. How many times has Jesus said, but I say to you, every single time we've been reading. Jesus is taking something they know and he's countering with something they don't. I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's earth, nor by, it's God's throne, nor by earth, it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, etc., etc. Because here's the point. In this one, Jesus mixes two verses. He takes a little bit of Leviticus 19 and he takes a little bit of Deuteronomy 23 and he takes a don't and a do and he sticks them together. He goes, you have heard it said, don't swear falsely. That's Leviticus 19. You've also heard it said that fulfill your oath to the Lord. That's Deuteronomy 23. They're both in the Torah code. They're relatively unrelated texts, but Jesus puts them together because that's how people were doing it. And Jesus says, but I say to you, don't swear by anything. Because by the time of Jesus' arrival, people would swear on the temple. By the time of our arrival, we'll swear in our mama's grave. You see, the, it's the same thing. And so what would happen in Jesus' day is that people would swear on the temple, swear on the sacrifice I'm going to offer in the temple as a way of solidifying their oath. So if I said to you, I'm going to do this. To make sure you knew I would do this, I make an oath on the temple. And if I make an oath on the temple and break it, well, that's terrible. And Jesus goes, but I say to you, stop breaking it anyway. <laughs> Essentially, you thought it was better if you swore on the temple. What if you just dis... Because here's how Jesus ends this. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. In other words, don't need an external circumstance to get you to keep your word. You've read that you can do that, and you've interpreted that you can do that, but I say to you, be the kind of person that keeps their word. If you say yes, mean yes. And if you say no, mean no. And you don't need to swear on the temple, and you don't need to swear on a sacrifice. He goes, and why does Jesus throw this in? Because he's showing how they read the word versus how he read the word. And how they read the word gave them an interpretive device to twist or to use or to do. And I hope you can see that in every one of these, what, what's happening is we're getting a scripture that we can somehow twist, somehow use to our advantage, somehow feel some sense of superiority or self-righteousness or morality. And then Jesus comes along and in every one of these situations, he points you out from you to your neighbor. 
So marriage becomes about your spouse. What oaths become about the person you promised? Every one of them stops being about us and starts being about them. And did you notice that for the most part, Christianity revolves in the way that we do it in church around do's and don'ts. Don't do bad stuff, do good stuff. And if you're confused on what's bad stuff, we'll tell you. And how many of you have noticed that the bad stuff shifts with technology? You notice that? TV, when I was a kid, he preached against TV. Didn't have a TV. That was the devil box. Right? Now, you can't talk on the phone without a portable TV. Right? Stop preaching against it. Oh, I don't think we ever should have been preaching against it. My point is, is that when you let people establish moral codes, it shifts. It's just shifting sand. It goes all over the place. What's okay today won't be okay tomorrow. What's not okay today will be okay tomorrow. It kind of just shifts with the culture and it shifts with the times and it shifts with who's preaching. Because I'd notice that some other dude would come in and just plow away at something else. And you go, ooh, boy, we really got to up our holy game. We're going to have so-and-so in here because he's all against that. And by the way, so-and-so was doing it. I don't know if I should say that, but I'm, I was raised in the church. And I can tell you a lot of the people that pranced out all their commands were preaching to themselves. So you come in back in backstage green rooms, get private in their homes. You saw the stuff that they said was bad on Sunday, but they were just trying to get victory with it on Monday. All right, that's enough of that garbage, right? Point is, it ain't about you. It isn't about your code, but it is about that next person. And that's where Jesus goes next. Because in verse 38, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, this is where we get off with, we don't, we need, these next two, we don't like Jesus. See, everybody going to shout those first few because you ain't broke any of them. You ain't messing with none of that murder and adultery stuff. You go, oh, I'm good, man. I like this preacher. That's where the crowd was with Jesus too. You notice how Jesus keeps ratcheting it up a little bit with every turn? Because get ready, these last two are boom. Now, I'm not going to lower a condemnation boom on you, I promise. Jesus doesn't condemn. But what Jesus does is he pulls the interpretation out of you being the sinner. And he puts it onto himself, being the fulfillment of your righteousness, and then demands of us that we love out of that. And if we're going to love out of that, we're going to have to deal with our neighbor. And dealing with our neighbor is where we all get off on, whether, on moral codes. That's where we run into our problems. And if you don't think it is, that's our dividing line in politics. That's our dividing line in government, is other people. It's how they interpret stuff and what they do, and I don't like it, and I disagree with them, and they're wrong, and they're the threat. And they, they becoming the threat, becomes our moral standard. Until before long, what we represent is a certain way of thinking and a certain kind of people, and everybody else is outside of that. And then the church doesn't become an open table to whoever wants to come in. It becomes a table to who can come in and feel good and comfy and think like me. And Jesus challenges that at every term and go, here's how you read it, but here's how I see it. So watch these last two. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I tell you, 
Don't resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other one. Now, this is a moment where Jesus dips as far back as he can into the Torah without getting to the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are Exodus 20. Jesus goes all the way back to Exodus 21, right outside the Ten Commandments. I've always thought that was curious. Right outside the Ten Commandments, Israel gets its reciprocity code. God gives them, thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And then... If someone kills someone, they get killed. If someone cuts off a hand, they get their hand cut off. If someone plucks out an eye, they get their eyeball plucked out. Reciprocity, whatever you do gets done back to you. That's right outside the Ten Commandments. So Jesus reaches all the way back to it and says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you. And that's the one we want him to leave alone. Because quite frankly, in Israel, they already didn't get to do it the way the rest of the world did it. Let me explain. The reciprocity of the systems of darkness is, whatever you do to me, I do double to you so you don't do it to me again. That's the reciprocity of darkness. You knock my house down, I burn down your village. I bet you don't knock my second house down. You kill one member of my family, I kill two of yours. We are going to do this until everyone's dead. That's the way of Cain. That's why God said seven a fold, sevenfold vengeance. Okay. What God meant was not I'm going to judge you seven times. He meant that if you kill like Cain, you get seven times the damage. That's the way of the world. Cain's grandson killed and said, may it be 70 times on me. And God said, yep. Because the longer this goes, the worse it gets. Burn down my house, I burn down your village. I burn down your village, so you burn down my town. You burn down my town, I bomb your whole country. You bomb my whole country, we bomb everybody on that side of the world. This is how this game's going to be played. So when God gave the code to Israel, he pulled the fences in. And he said, no more. Now, if they hit you, you can hit them back. You don't go hit them and their kid. Right? So Israel was not real happy with the reciprocity code anyway. And here comes Jesus going... I got another level for you. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. My question to you is, what happens in a world where it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? We end up with no one with an eyeball, no one with a tooth. <laughs> Have you ever thought that through? That's literally what the world ends up. If it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you're not going to get people to stop that first eye gouge. That's in our blood, man. I'm going to gouge that eye. What's going to happen to mine? I'm going to lose it. Guess what I'm going after next? The only other one you got. Guess which one I'm losing. Do you see how this keeps going? Why don't we ever get out of this cycle in the world? Because it's the cycle of the world. So Jesus goes, you've read that you get to do this, but I say to you, don't resist an evil person. A man smites you on the cheek, turn to them the other one. And unfortunately, all we do is spend our time trying to figure out if we get to fight back on the playground. That's how we do this in church. We just put up a bunch of questions going, when's it okay for me to shoot back? When's it okay for me to punch back? And Jesus is trying to explain to us that that's how we read the Bible. We read it for instructions on what we get to do. But I say to you, it's never about what you get to do. It's about your neighbor. So until you start thinking about your neighbor, you haven't discovered the Jesus of the Bible. But when it's what I get to do and how I get to respond, then I'm the center of the GPS screen. It's located around me. And everything is relative to how I think, how I act, how I feel, how I pray, how I fast, how I give, what I do. And none of it is. And that's Jesus' point. 
And so Jesus says, but I say to you, create a world that's different than the one you came out of. And let's double down. Verse 43, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. If you hated the one before this, you're going to loathe this one. Now, here's an interesting thing. I don't know how many of you are holding hard copies, and I mean a Bible that has those old crispy pages. And if you do, probably regardless of your translation, you're going to notice something interesting in the text of 43. You have heard that it was said, and you might have slanted, you shall love your neighbor. If your text looks slanted, italicized a little bit, there's two reasons that your translators italicize words in the Bible. Reason number one is that they're adding a word that was not found in the original Greek or the original Hebrew, and they want you to know that they stuck that in there to make the verse make sense. Sometimes they help us and sometimes they hurt us. The other reason they slant text is because based upon how they're printing, sometimes they're quoting scripture. And in this case, they're quoting scripture. Now, I want you to notice something interesting. I didn't bring that out just to bring it out. You shall love your neighbor is slanted. It's italicized because it's scripture. And hate your enemy. Do most of your translations not slant hate your enemy? You know why? Because for the first time in his argument, Jesus is mixing Torah with street thought. Torah with interpretation of Torah. The first one, you shall love your neighbor, is Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I thought we would do better with that. You shall... (laughs) (laughs) You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that one's in Torah. Leviticus 19 has an obvious part. We even know it gets pulled over into the New Testament because Jesus quotes it, Right. right? But then he throws one in that does not have quote marks around it. Hate your enemy. And the reason it doesn't have quotes around it is because it's not in the Bible. And yet he puts it right up there as common knowledge. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And it's common knowledge because this is a moment where Jesus shows how they interpret the Bible. And how they interpret the Bible is love your neighbor, do everything you can for your neighbor, but when they're your enemy, hate them. Fight them, resist them, beat them up, kick them out. And Jesus says, but I say to you, and anytime you get a but I say to you, no, Jesus disagrees with something. But I say to you, love them, bless them, pray for them. Well, a man once asked the great British pastor, G. Campbell Morgan, he said, you're being unrealistic with your Christianity. He said, you believe that we should love our enemies, bless our enemies, and pray for our enemies, but if we did that, they wouldn't be our enemies anymore. And Morgan said, that's the point. Oh, I know it's not the quick way to change the world, but it's the Jesus way. What Jesus introduces to us is how we read the Bible is often centric on how we want to read it. And how he read the Bible was centric on how his father loved people. So his father was thinking about the abandoned wife. His father was thinking about the woman who was prey to someone's sexual predation. His father was thinking about The emotions of his people that fumed towards their neighbor. His father was thinking about a world where everyone knocks out everyone else's tooth. 
and how that world is going to come to a tragic end. His father lays the scriptures out not so that we can find out if we're living them right, but so we can find out how to love right. I land today with the thought that from this point on, the New Testament is infatuated with the man Jesus. And the New Testament writers do everything that they can to pull that spotlight back onto Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, in the seventh verse, it says, In the volume of the book, it is written about me. That's the author of Hebrews, a letter written to Hebrews, to Jewish people who have come to faith in Christ. It's that writer saying to a Jewish audience, Your entire scripture is written about Jesus. And while we say amen to that and nod our head, and we should, it's so difficult to get our minds in their mindset where the Scripture was not written about Jesus. He didn't exist when the Scriptures were written. The scriptures were about us. It's our Bible. To this day, the Old Testament among Judaism is called the Hebrew Scriptures. Because it's about them. And for most of us, we think of the Christian Bible because it's about us. What's the Bible say? To me. But it's all the volume of the whole book about Jesus. On resurrection morning, Jesus is making the seven... Or I'm sorry. On resurrection afternoon, two disciples are making a seven-mile journey from Emmaus to Jerusalem. And on the way down the road, as they walk, they encounter a stranger. And the Bible tells the reader, us, that the stranger is Jesus but that he's blinded the eyes of the two apostles on the road so that they won't know it's him. And as they walk down the road with Jesus, not knowing it's Jesus, Jesus says, why are you guys so sad? And they say, haven't you heard the events that took place this week in Jerusalem? And Jesus sort of feigns ignorance and goes, no, what happened this weekend in Jerusalem? And they say the one who we thought would redeem Israel was crucified and died. And that tells you right there that we don't see Jesus the way Jesus sees Jesus because they thought he would redeem Israel and that he failed. Because the redemption they thought they were getting was someone's going to kill Caesar. But I say to you, someone did defeat Caesar. God's victory never looks like your victory. And as they walk down the road, the Bible says that Jesus began to open the Scriptures. He doesn't have a Bible in His hand. They don't have that. He has it in His heart. And as they walk, the Bible says in the book of Luke chapter 24, as they walked, He began to expound unto them the Scriptures concerning Himself from the Law and the Prophets. It doesn't say he expounded on them every scripture. It says he expounded on them the scriptures concerning himself. What did he do with the scriptures that didn't concern himself? He just skipped them. Guys, it's a seven-mile walk. It takes like two hours. You're going to expound the entire Old Testament in two hours? Good luck. I ain't made it through Matthew 5, and I'm pushing it like you're fidgety. Like you're going, wind it down. I get it. I feel it. I know. I'm close. The plane is circling the tower. By God, we don't want to run into anybody down there. We've got to land properly, right? You don't get anyone hurt. 
All that time we were talking about planes, I could have been landing. See, that's on you. So the scriptures concerning himself, so the ones that didn't concern himself, he skipped. But the scriptures concerning himself, he brought Jesus out in every one of those scriptures. I like to think that he was the rock that hit Goliath. I like to think he's Noah's Ark with one door, anointed, covered with pitch, provides life for everything that gets inside of him. I think every story he could find where Jesus was standing in the shadows, he brought it out. I can't wait to get to heaven and ask him, can you re-preach for me the road to Emmaus? I want to hear what you said to those two apostles. That's my number one request of Jesus, I think, in glory. And I want to see that answer. And the Bible says that they get to the house and they break bread. And as he breaks bread and hands it to them, when they take it into their mouths, their eyes are opened and they see Jesus for as he is. And the moment they see him as he is, he disappears. Why does he disappear? Because for all of us that consume the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, like you're about to do, our privilege is now to see Jesus in here. We don't get to see Jesus in the flesh. We get to see Jesus right here. And that's what he does on the road to Emmaus is go, if you want to see me from now on, open your Bibles. Open your Bible and don't look for you. Look for me. And when you think you got it figured out, just remember, but I say to you. Right. Every now and then, you're going to think you got this figured out. This is what I do. I've been, I'll read and I'll go, man, I got it. I'm going to preach to that group over there at Chapin. I'm going to preach to that group in Columbia. I know what it is. And then I will hear him say in the stillness of the night, but I say to you. And I go, go back to the drawing board and look for Jesus because a bunch of that sermon was about you. Bunch of that sermon was you telling stories. Stories about ministry. How many of you have noticed a lot of stories about ministry are self-praising stories about the minister? Or we could make Jesus the star. Can I give you one more? I want to show you one more, and I just want you to take this one home with you, all right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we've been cleared for a landing. Please return your tables. They're full, upright, and locked positions. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. You must continue in the things you've learned and been assured of, knowing them, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. Time out. Paul talking to Timothy. What Scriptures does Timothy have? Hebrew Scriptures, Old Testament. He doesn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That doesn't exist yet, okay? So when you talk to Timothy about Holy Scriptures, you're talking about the same Scriptures Jesus had in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. That's the ones that Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. All right. Timothy, that's the stuff you've had since you were a little kid. The Holy Scriptures. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus, what would you find if you jumped into the Holy Scriptures? Salvation in Jesus. So if what you find in the Scriptures is a way to win a Facebook battle, you aren't reading it right. If what you find in the Scripture is the zinger you need on that co-worker and their false doctrine, you're not reading it right. If the scripture that you are searching out, working on, is to justify how you feel, 
or prop up your theory, you're not reading it right. And I didn't say that. Paul said it to Timothy, and Jesus said it first. You have heard it said, but I say to you. When you get this in your spirit, I'm going to tell you something. This book becomes exciting. It's not a history book. It's not a map. It's not a spiritual GPS. It's not a guidebook to a foreign country or foreign time. It's a snapshot of Jesus. It's a screenplay, and Jesus is the main character. And in the scenes where you don't see him, you can just move on past. It's filled with characters. They're doing all kinds of stuff, and some of it's terrible. You ever read the Bible and went, good grief, that guy. Why are we talking about him in Sunday school? Or we don't need to talk about him in Sunday school. Agreed, you don't. He's not your salvation. Jesus is. Everybody's always getting into the up in arms. How are we going to explain this to our kids? We're not. We're going to explain Jesus. We're going to open the Bible. We're going to show them Jesus. And we're going to be honest about stuff we don't understand and go, I don't know why that's there. Maybe that's just somebody there, but that's not Jesus. Let's find Jesus. If we find him, we'll sing about him. We'll preach about him. We'll live him out. We'll show the world. You'll show your city. They'll know that when they come there, that's the place they get to see Jesus. Would you bow your heads for a moment? I apologize for monopolizing almost an hour of your life. I hope that what you will remember this morning is not how long that dude preached, but did you see Jesus today? Here's what I also know, and I say this with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, so just concentrate on this. I want to I make sure we say this correctly. No distraction. By doing what we did today with the Sermon on the Mount, I know we created a world of questions. Now you got questions about divorce. Now you got questions about lust. Now you got questions about violence. Now you got... Good! Good! Because you get to put all of them in the Jesus context. You get to go back to the Word and you get to look for Jesus in relation to your questions. That's what ought to happen. We, for too long, have told people that the Bible holds their answers. The Bible holds a bunch of question marks. Jesus is their answer. And so when you open it, we look for Jesus. Father, I don't know how to land this today other than to just say, thank you, Jesus. You are good. Thank you for your guidance, your love, your redemption. Thank you for permission to read the Bible through the Jesus lens. Help us when we come across the things we don't understand to realize that not understanding them is part of the human experience. But don't let us stop there, Father. Show us how to put the spotlight on Jesus. Show us how to find Jesus in the shadows. Show us how to find Jesus in the verse. Teach us, Father, that the Bible is not to be weaponized, to be used against the people we disagree with or that we doctrinally don't understand. But it is meant to be a book that shows us Jesus. And so, Father, teach us how to find Jesus there so that we can see Jesus in others. And the next time we're tempted to weaponize the Bible, just remind us, but I say unto you, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church.